Welcome to Driven Radio Show, your home for car talk covering the latest news to the greatest views on the biggest names in performance, sports, and just plain cool driving machines. Your hosts are freelance auto journalist, senior auction analyst for Sports Car Market Magazine, writer and editor of ReadTheDriven.com, Brett Hatfield, plus videographer and host of the YouTube channel Craving Cars, Corey Pratt, and 35-year radio veteran, book publisher, and vehicular village idiot, Mark Catfish Groves. Let's rev up the conversation. Time for Driven Radio Show. Hey, all you car fiends and gearheads, welcome to Driven Radio, your weekly automotive happy hour. I am Brett Hatfield, here with our engineer and co-host, Sir Mark Groves. Yes, sir. And the evil genius of Craving Cars on YouTube, Mr. Corey Pratt. Yeah, it's me. We are coming to you from Driven Radio Studios at Driven Media World Headquarters in beautiful, scenic, bucolic Ooh. Overland Park, Kansas. It, yeah, it's it's bucolic <laughs> You can find us online at DrivenRadioShow.com and ReadTheDriven.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at <gasps> Driven Radio Show. And listen everywhere fine podcasts are heard. If you like what you are hearing, give us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform and be sure to tell your gearhead friends. If there is something you'd like to hear more of or someone you think we should interview, because we love an interesting story. Absolutely. I, we love a great story. Tell us. Send your emails to brett at drivenradioshow.com. Gentlemen. Yes. What did you do with your motorized conveyances this week? Uh, I, uh, I got my butt in my Porsche and I drove to St. Louis. Really? What was in St. Louis? Uh, buildings that aren't in Kansas City. Oh. Well, <laughs> geography looking. has a way of making that work. Yeah, it's kind of, oh, uh, I just went out there, uh, spent the weekend, uh, uh, grabbed the wife by the back of the head and grabbed her too and threw her in a car. Like, wow. you're coming with me. No, that's not really how that happened. But anyways, we went to St. Louis, uh, the it, 33rd annual St. Louis European Auto Show was that weekend. Was last oh, weekend. no kidding. What'd you see? Anything good? Awesome stuff. I saw a Yugo. <laughs> I haven't seen one of those in a long time. You know, they paint those with rear window defrosters mm-hmm. so your hands wouldn't get cold in the wintertime. So check this out. <laughs> My wife actually laughed at that car. She goes, is that the spare tire sitting on top of the engine? I'm like, yep, that's where they put yes, it. Yes, it is. Uh, this is the diversity of this show. There was a Yugo. There was also a Bugatti Chiron there. Really? Yes, that starts over $3 million with before options. Uh, there was uh, over 20 see. Lamborghinis, a big handful of Porsche, Ferraris. The oil change on the Bugatti would buy you how many Yugos? <laughs> I, it's six or seven. More than it? anybody should ever even look at, <laughs> yeah, let alone own. A lot full. Yeah. Anyways, it's a great show. Uh, contacted the guy. He actually remembered me from back in 2019, the last wow. time. Because they canceled it last year. Yes, they canceled everything last yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's just like, we'd love to have you back out. And so he gave me a nice little spot parked with the other uh, Porsches. Dude, and awesome. Nice. That's cool. And uh, yeah. And some little girl came by and voted for my car to be one of the best Porsches. I was like, wow. <gasps> oh, that's just because that's she's associated with Redline Rallies. And I think you still got the stickers on your I car. I think it was just because of the big RR. And the, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe her name's like Rosalind or. Yeah, who knows? It, it looked like it had lipstick or something Robin on Wright. the side. Yeah, like that's it got, the one. Like it got kissed on the cheek, you know, and it left the oh, lipstick I, mark or something. Oh. No, anyways, but uh, it was a good show. A lot of really cool stuff. There'll be a video uh, coming out in the next few weeks of that. On if Craving cars if you finally get time to edit everything. I'm trying. You are a busy man. It is backed up a little bit. There's God, a few videos in this place. It seems like we're all pretty well covered over. How about you, Mr. Mark? What you did? Uh, not much of anything. I did take the bike out for a little bit because bike... And then um, I, I did and got a little lost south of here. I was trying to find. Dude, that's the best part, though. I was trying to find the hidden route to uh, uh, to uh, you always pay less in Paola, uh, down to Paola, and didn't 
but no. uh, did find a lake that I didn't know was back down in there and some other places and <laughs> some nice fresh air. And then uh, took the trailer Monday. I had Monday and Tuesday off from work. So I took the trailer over and got the uh, license put into my name, which, by the way, uh, definitely make yourself known over at the uh, D- the inspection part of the DMV, because uh-huh. if you don't, you pull up and you get in line and no, get in no. your place, no. and then they forget you. You have to go and see. And you're there for a freaking hour <laughs> no. before somebody on break while they're smoking goes, oh. You have to go see the blonde lady named Carol while you're there who is one of the ALR sisters, uh, she rides her own self. That was probably my mistake then. Because, yeah, I, I sat there in my truck, waited, you know, I'd, I'd gone in and uh, and this guy pulls up behind me. He's got this massive boat and this huge trailer. And I've got my little, you know, motorcycle trailer on the back of my truck. And I'm sitting there and they go out and they inspect his trailer. And then he has to back up. Yeah. To leave. And that's not the best parking lot in the world. No. And I'm like, hey. Uh, hey. <laughs> hey. It was a, hey, girl. <laughs> and it was a lady out on break taking a smoke. She's like, what are you still doing here? And I'm like, you know, that question has crossed my mind. So she went back in and found out that they just lost me in the shuffle. And it happened. And we got it taken care of. So that's all's good. well that ends well. That's and I, I actually did back that little bitty trailer in almost straight to my driveway on like the ninth try. That's good. And I learned also that cutting really tight corners are bad. Yeah. Uh, they will they will dent your chrome bumper. Uh, well, just FYI. The, the shorter the trailer, the more difficult they are to back. Yes. You know, the shorter the trailer, the sweeter the juice. <laughs> That's not how that works. That's not how that goes. That's not how that works. Damn it. <laughs> nice, nice Let's try. Let's look at that hey, hey. bumper going. <laughs> we, we, good God. We, we all appreciate the reach, though. Thanks. <laughs> You bet. That's what I do. <laughs> I got to drive all the fun stuff this weekend, and then Ooh, nice. uh, I, I broke everything. What? Eh, kind of. Uh, I've either broken a tooth off the starter or broken multiple te- teeth off the starter, or the starter is loose, or I've got a couple teeth missing. Which one? Flywheel. I don't know. It's uh, no, which which vehicle? 61 on, the, oh. on Vlad. Oh. And that is why Ooh. Vlad is sitting in my garage at such a peculiar angle and very close to the garage door because that's all the further I could you push it. You broke Vlad's fangs off? I did. Damn it. I did. I did not mean to. So a uh, little you, mister. little trouble getting her started. Had to bring her home on the back of a flatbed. That was oh, not good. Oh, no. Yeah, well, you didn't want to push start it? Now, because... <laughs> Because the tool finally, the clutch. because the tool finally got here from Germany. Germany, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, how's that going? The '65 is at the shop now, and we're pulling the wheels off, checking wheel bearings and brakes, and replacing the parking brake, and putting the gold line tires on, and just doing the post-purchase, pre-purchase inspection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the post-2,500 mile drive inspection. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to drive this thing 3,000 miles, and then we'll do a pre-purchase on it. <laughs> uh, well played. It's, it's in the shop, having all that stuff uh, taken care of, and hopefully by the time we get the 65 back, we'll have all the bugs worked out, at nice. least for now. And the 60 Corvettes in the garage, it's running great. It is perpetually re- uh, reliable. You know, you get in and you pump the gas a couple times and it fires right up and takes off. and just. But like I said before the show, it's so dirt simple, it's tough to break anything on that car. There's Which nothing one? to break. There's no power steering, no power brakes, no AC, no FM, and no payments since the Kennedy administration. <laughs> well, you so, know, I, I read an article and they said that the 1960 vet is the most reliable vet ever built. Uh-huh, I wrote that article. 
Oh, yeah. well, there you go. <laughs> well, there it is. It was in GM Authority just recently. See, that's was. how that works. Actually, that's exactly what I saw. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, for the Kansas City listeners and anybody else who's close to the region, the Great Car Show is this weekend, this Sunday, down at Liber- Liberty, Liberty Memorial. Memorial. Yeah. Uh, our friend, Mr. Ped Watt, has stolen a wide-body Porsche from somebody, and we'll be down there showing that car. And... And that was that's that's put on in a uh, co-op deal with the World War One Museum and the Kansas City, City Automotive, Automotive Museum. Museum. Yes, who, it is. Good, good, good friends of ours. Um, lots of cool stuff is going to be down there. Thank God I didn't register any of my cars since I was wondering which one are you going to take? And like, which one I'm are you going to push in there? <laughs> Ow. Hi, this is my 99 Navigator that I registered. If you could find a classic tow truck, I mean, you know, make it a package deal. I'm, start, go. I'm starting go. to think that may not be the worst that's investment not, I've ever had. It's not the baddest idea I've ever brought up in this show. No. You can take no. the 60. Uh, probably will probably okay. take the okay. 60 and just street park at some place and we'll go down there and rescue Mr. Ped in the middle of the afternoon, take him to eat someplace. But be sure to go check out the great car show going on this weekend, Sunday, the 18th at the Liberty Memorial. Nice. And if, uh, I, I don't, I haven't looked at the weather, but I trust that since this car show is going on, it'll rain Sunday. <laughs> yeah, Saturday's supposed to be nice. So Sunday should suck. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> well, we haven't had a weekend where everything was kosher all the way through for a while. No, uh, that's not our way. Because <laughs> Kansas. Because Kansas. There you go. Even in, even in St. Louis, uh, it rained half the time I was there uh, last weekend. So no surprise that. Go. Nice. This week in the news, three guys barnstormed the lower 48 states in fewer than 87 hours. Let that sink in. Three guys, one car, 48 states, 87 hours. Holy crow. Uh, California hates your hot rod and all the skinny we have on the coming Corvette Z06. Our special guest this week is James Hewitt, editor of the Haggerty Motorcycle Price Guide. James will be here to discuss how he became the motorcycle guru at Haggerty, the white-hot motorcycle market. Hey, it parallels the collector car market. Mm-hmm. And what we can expect in the two-wheeled future. Hey, let's take a look at this week's news. From road and track, the trio drives to all 48 contiguous states in 86 hours, 19 minutes. That's like less than two hours a state. It's pretty amazing. Wow, you can math. What? Now, What's that mean? Now, you got to think, it, uh, you know, with, uh, with the idea of being I've driven into all 48 states, you can go to the corner of Kansas and Missouri and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and just go well, and suddenly you've been in all four. Isn't it right? Colorado, Wyoming, Arizona, New oh, Mexico yeah. or something like that? You can get all... There's like five of them. You do a donut yeah. and you hit them all and there then boom, go. get down yeah. the road. However, it's still a hell of a drive. Uh, you know, I would love to visit a bunch of the states. I've, I've got goals. I'm going to go into Monument Valley as God is my witness and I want to go to Yosemite Park. In 51 years, I've managed to hit 37 be of good. them. Nice. There you go. Nice. You uh, go. These three lunatics went and hit all 48, fewer than 87 hours. It was Todd Heckel, 49, of Seattle, Washington. Grady Leno, 48, of Isn't Philadelphia, Grady Pennsylvania. fantastic name? It's pretty nice. <laughs> I like Grady. It was one of my favorite characters, too, from Sanford and Sons. That's right. And then Peter LaFort, 53, of Palm Springs, California. They started this meticulously planned journey on July 8th from the parking lot of Wicked Awesome Barbecue in White River Junction, Vermont. Because why not? Yeah, well, barbecue, yeah, mm-hmm. I gotta go. Wicked Awesome. 86 hours go. and 19 minutes later, the trio drove across the Columbia River into Washington State, capping a 6,677-mile 6, wow. odyssey. 
touched every one of the contiguous 48 states. Dude, you got to just be in awe of 6,700 miles cool. in 86 hours. You know, 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, that's almost four days. Almost four days in a Mercedes S-Class. That's a nice way to travel, but four their, days in a car is four no, days that's in a, a car. that's a long time. I wonder time. what their average uh, like MPG? speed was. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering like, how many. Because you can take the miles by the time. You had to be able to average what the speed was. Well, I'm, I'm wondering how many beef jerky Oh, God, <laughs> yeah. How many wrappers <laughs> are on the beef floor? Beef jerky wrappers and corn nuts. <laughs> Thank and, God the windows could roll down automatically. Oh, yeah. uh, oh, uh, Imagine the protein from that. It was a culmination of lengthy planning, and they said, and I quote this, unlike the cannonball, which is about speed, the lower 48 is more about route optimization and planning. That's what uh, Leno said, the owner of the record-setting Mercedes and a self-proclaimed math nerd. <laughs> he also said it took more than 60 hours of planning to figure out how to put tires on tarmac in each of the lower 48 states, which, yeah, you'd have to be yeah, I'd imagine so, pretty yeah. decisive. Yep. That diligence paid off. The new record time is more than eight hours faster than the previous. God almighty. Yeah, which was at uh, 94 hours, 42 minutes, and 35 seconds since 2015. So congrats on them. Guys, eat some salad. Yeah, oh yeah. And take some yeah. walks. You might want to you might want to do a cleanse. Yeah, I'm just saying. And I didn't even know this was a thing until I saw it pop up on Road and Track. And damn, man. 6,700 miles, all 48 contiguous states, 86 hours and change. And I bet you wouldn't want to see the inside of a car again for a week. No. Uh, there's there's a certain amount of time where you're just like, okay, done. Yeah. Done. Yeah. Well, I'm saying, like, nowadays, you know, we were just talking, you know, before this, like, didn't didn't know this was even a thing. Like, that this was someone that would even bother setting a record. But I guess nowadays you probably shouldn't be surprised on what there is for someone setting a record on something. Okay, I'm going to bring this up before either of you two does. There's got to be some car-related record that three podcasters from Kansas could go after. <laughs> uh, it, and I'm hoping it's significantly dumber than this. Most Slim Jims ever eaten in a More car. Oh, Let's boy, go. Let's oh, go. You're going to have an entire rack in the yeah. back seat. Oh, hell yeah. Watch me. Spin the rack of meat. Jim. <laughs> oh, Take yeah. my beer. Take a chance. Where's your sense of adventure? But that's a uh, you know, I, I would. It would be a lot of movie watching because there's going to oh, yeah. be a couple of people. There's going to be your uh, your side driver uh, keeping the maps and navigating, and then there's going to yeah. be some idiot yeah. in the back trying to sleep because then they got to take over as you spin the wheel of eight hour shifts. Oh. But uh, that's a lot of movies, man. And how many times do you have to say, "Put your goddamn shoes back on"? I don't want to <laughs> smell that. <laughs> that's oh, the God. only time you take Febreze and spray it on your body. Yeah, Speaking oh. of smelling, maybe we shouldn't eat Slim Jims. Oh, God, man. Chicken. Roll down a What's window. What's the gas going to be like after <laughs> Chicken. that? Chicken. Oh, yeah. boy. Hot wings. Buffalo wings. I'm bringing nothing but broccoli and hate. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I ate Brussels sprouts the day before. I get to ride in the trunk. <laughs> I'm eating pepper jack cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to teach you what pain is all about. Oh, I'm going to have to go oxygen line. I, I would like to elect that we take this trip in a convertible. <laughs> Done. <laughs> All right, another one from Road and Track. California will start testing for ECU tunes during smog check starting next week. Commies. I think he's waiting all day for that one. Uh, if you live in California and run an aftermarket tune on your car, you might want to think about flashing your ECU back to stock before your smog check. Starting July 19th of 2021, testing stations will begin to check whether your cars are running OEM or some kind of 
California Air Resources Board, or otherwise known as CARB, CARB. approved tunes. So if your car uh, isn't, it will fail the test. Honest to God, I kind of wonder, as much as California has always presented, you know, kind of freedom and this and that, and it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, damn, dude, are we gonna? You gonna have to apply for a license for how many times you shake after you pee? Commies. I mean, for Pete's sake, if you'll forgive the pun, it just it, things are. <laughs> it's it's making me crazy, man. I'm like, I'm living in I'm living in freaking Kansas, and I'm going, man. I'm glad I have my freedoms. What the hell did I just say? I really want you to leave that in. That was god awful. <laughs> stupid, and I couldn't run away from it after it left my mouth. Whoops. Well, that's that's California. They're they're one of uh, they want to up everybody, but in the dumbest way. Uh, I I just I don't understand it. Here's one of the things that I find really upsetting about this. And living in Kansas and looking at California, it's easy for me to cast aspersions on yeah. what they're doing. But California is arguably the heart of car culture in this country, and probably for the world. That there is no bigger center for car culture, especially Southern California. Yeah. And I won't disagree with that. Disagree. It seems three or four times a year they pass some kind of regulation to try and stomp on that culture. And, you know, they, they've passed a lot of uh, – I'm going to go off on a channel. <laughs> go for it. you got 30 seconds. They seem to be driving people away in every way that they can. And I would just think that the people there would get tired of it. Uh, their taxes are really high, and they are just – legislated to death and california especially all of our california car friends oh, yeah. a lot of them have been on this show hey we feel for you man yeah, I, yeah. I i hope it gets better yeah yeah me too but, you know uh, we have great coastal views at some of our lakes yes <laughs> yes <laughs> sure we do <laughs> hey, hey here's an interesting bit of trivia for you lake of the ozarks has more miles of shoreline than florida you see we're kicking ass and come to the Midwest. Names. Yeah, that's come to the Redneck Riviera. We'll show you how it's done. <laughs> there you go. Well, the new policy is outlined in the California Bureau of Automotive Repairs Frequently Asked Questions section. Oh, whatever. So, yeah, beginning the, well, like I said, July 19, 2021, vehicles with software not provided by the original equipment manufacturer, OEM, or approved through CARB, uh, executive order will fail smog checks. And I just think. If it's still passing the stupid smog thing, then who cares? You know, and I'm I'm kind of wondering uh, how far away from OEM standards the CARB executive order is. Because they can specify anything there. You know, hey, it passed smog, but we found two squirrel nuts in there, and that's not good. <laughs> and that's not good. These are endangered squirrel nuts. Yeah, these, endangered. <laughs> these are left-handed squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> you got to watch for them. <laughs> no kidding. Well, before your vehicle will pass smog check, you just, you know what? If you have a tune, if you can flash it back to the, the, the yep. OEM, just Let's do that. Flash it back, drive and, 25 miles, and then go get your and car And then, checked. yeah, there you go. Go the other way. Well, you know, California is among the strictest regions of the planet when it comes to the emissions policies. So it's not surprising to see the bar implemented a, a, a rule. Uh, that yeah. it thinks will curb emissions by preventing cars from using aftermarket tunes. It's not going to prevent people from using aftermarket tunes, people. Uh, it's just going to make them take an extra step. One thing I would add real quick, and I'll I'll put the link to this on, uh, on the Read the Driven webpage. There's an article out this year, and I think it was in Forbes, that said that 
think it was the United Nations, said that the U.S. has already cut emissions so much that they no longer needed to be part of the Paris uh, <laughs> Accords. Wow. Huh. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, but uh, let's leave it go to California America. to think up something goofy like this. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, they have to go by what the most stricted part of the country is, which is California. Well, yeah, and they they want to be first. Even though it's the Midwest are going, oh, let it breathe, baby. Let hey, it breathe. I, I got a whole lot better bit of news here. The 2023 C8 Corvette Z06. There are details out about when it's coming and what it's going to be. <laughs> Is it good? Yeah, I may have to Is buy it an- good, Brad? I got it. I'm going to have to buy another Corvette. <laughs> <laughs> From road and track, for nearly 70 years, the Chevrolet Corvette has been a staple of the sports car market. With the debut of the mid-engine C8 Corvette in 2019, the Corvette underwent its largest transformation yet. Now... GM is hard at work prepping the track-oriented Z06 model, and here is everything that is known about it thus far. Oh, boy. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Come on. Come on. It's like Hmm. Christmas. I might have to adjust myself. I'm going to have to loosen my pants. The C8 (laughs) C8 Corvette Z06 will be powered by a a 5.5-liter V8 engine derived from the Corvette Racing C8R. Known internally as the LT6, it features dual overhead cams and a flat-plane crank. The Z06 is expected to rev up to 9,000 RPM and produce 617 horsepower. That it would make the LT6 the most powerful, naturally aspirated V8, surpassing the Ferrari 458 Special's 597 horse. Take it, Ferrari! (laughs) Uh, The Z06 will have a unique center exit exhaust layout. The Z06 will also have an upgraded version of the C8's 8-speed Tremec dual-clutch automatic, which is expected to have even faster gear changes. The Z06 will have wider bodywork, sticky Michelin Pilot Cup Sport Cup 2R tires, (laughs) measuring, Corey... 345, 25, 21 in the back, or as wide as your dining room table, and 275, 30 ZR20s up front with optional carbon fiber wheels, upgraded aero, optional active aero dynamic bits, and multiple wing and splittered packages. GM appears to be benchmarking the Z06 against the Ferrari 458 and Porsche 911 GT2 RS. Both high-end sports cars have been spotted alongside various Z06 prototypes over the past few years. It is expected that the C8 Z06 will list around eighty-five grand, and then you're going to have to add options, or about twenty-five more than a standard Stingray. The GT2 RS carried an MSRP of two hundred ninety-three. Oh, dang! Yeah. By comparison, <laughs> before eighty-five options. grand versus two ninety-three. <laughs> before options, I've never seen one go under three hundred. That's oh, my God, you could get three of them and probably pay the tax. Oh, you could get three of them and, <laughs> and pay the lease on a nice condo for a year. <laughs> uh, expect the Z06 to debut next year ahead of the 2023 model, model year sales debut. So, coming up, uh, probably about this time next year, going to be a giant killer and it's going to sell for you know you could probably get one nice nicely loaded for about a buck when the gt2 would run you 300k nice <laughs> a dog a hunt are you kidding me i'm already starting to check my couch for change <laughs> our special guest this week is james hewitt 
uh, editor of Haggerty Motorcycle Price Guide. James will be here to discuss how he became the motorcycle guru at Haggerty, the white-hot motorcycle market, and what we can expect in the two-wheeled future. This and much more coming up next here on Driven Radio. Welcome back to Driven Radio, coming to you from Driven Media World Headquarters in Overland Park, World Headquarters, also known as the dining room I stole from my wife. (laughs) She's very kind. Yeah, well, quite understanding. (laughs) God bless her. Our special guest this week is James Hewitt, information analyst for the Price Guide team and manager of the Motorcycle Price Guide at Haggerty. The Motorcycle Guide has just been updated as of the 1st of June, so this is very timely. And uh, James had a really fantastic uh, live uh, live stream this morning uh, talking about it, and I was able to listen to about 37 seconds of it because I was working. <laughs> Unfortunately. Cursed jobs. means we're probably going to make you cover more of the ground again, James. But, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I will happily do it. Thanks so much for being with us on Driven Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. This is fun. You know, I will... Uh... Always talk bikes with anyone, and really we've got some, you know, Brett, you're quite passionate here, and got some new riders, old riders, and it's fun to chat about it. One of the quotes from, the quote that got me from the live stream today that I liked, 2% of the vehicles that are on the road are motorcycles, but 100% of the motorcyclists are passionate about it. In the motorcycle community is nothing is practical. You either are sweating in the sun, you're wet in the rain, you're cold in the cold weather yeah you see mark shaking his head welcome to it buddy yeah i'm like what the hell is up with that i was comfortable when i had ac but i look cooler Uh (laughs) i may not be cooler it's that experience and that feeling that everyone's after and so you have to search that out and you have to be passionate about two wheels to want to search that out to get a joy out of these bikes and the fellow i did the live stream with earlier we're talking about the state of the market nick smith he's a dealer out in california and used to run Bottoms motorcycle division. He's just a wonderful man. And he said that he was once asked the difference between a car enthusiast and a motorcycle enthusiast is that when you talk to a motorcycle enthusiast about a trip they did, you'll tell about the feelings you had, the experiences yeah. you had. And then halfway in, you'll ask, oh, what bike were you riding? Where were the car enthusiasts? The first thing you talk about is my 400 horsepower Dodge Viper or whatever car it is. So with a bike, it's all about the experience. It is. It is. I always thought that Harley should have run a commercial about how much better things smell on a motorcycle. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Not including that skunk I ran over coming out of Hutchinson one night. I I scraped him with my boot, and that's all the closer I needed to be. (laughs) Oh, boy. You're either going to smell of oil, gas, or whatever things you passed on the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, because of all that olfactory stuff, you almost know immediately when something's wrong with your bike. You can smell it right now. Yeah. So what's your motorcycling background? What was your first bike? How old were you when you started riding? How many bikes have you had? And uh, what's in your collection now? Spill. What do you have that's cool? How long is this radio show? That's awesome. <laughs> Three more minutes. Um, as long as you need, baby. <laughs> I have quite a background. Um, so I guess my dad got me into dirt bikes as a kid and just kind of raced around tracks and had fun with it. And then I was always, when I turned 16, it was, I'll get a motorcycle. But I'd always, 
prior to that, any hobby I was in, I would just buy and sell things. If I got into, I don't know, mountain biking, I would buy a mountain bike if I knew the market and I would start buying more and selling them. If I got into trading cards, I would kind of like buy and sell them. And as I got into motorcycles, I quickly realized that was going to be the next thing. You know, I was looking for my first bike. I, I bought two at once. Um, I think I, it was a, a trip I did. I lived in the middle of Michigan. I saw one for sale on Craigslist. It was a CB350, uh, 970 CB350. And another one popped up, a CL350, like an hour south of that. So I picked up both of them. They're way too cheap. Um, I was back in you know high school at the time and you know left class with lunch to get the money and go down. And my parents are very understanding, if you can't tell. And picked up both of those. And then I quickly realized I could sell them more than I bought them for. So I sold them. And then that just kind of kept going, kept going. I mean, honestly, by the time I was 18, I probably owned 25, 30 bikes. Um, and I started exporting them to a guy in England and <laughs> got into it in that way. And a lot of things fell into place with that. And then I'd say I really started keeping bikes or enjoying them as riders. Uh, the bikes I've had now, those ones I've had for six, seven years in the garage, um, some old BMWs, um, in the 60s, R60 slash twos, R69s. I um, just sold one of those and bring a trailer. Um, but the collection right now is everything from 50s British bikes to oh, 19 wow. Hondas, 70s Hondas, 60s BMWs, new KTMs, Ducatis. How many uh, bikes right now? I haven't counted in a while. I didn't ask you if you needed an intervention. <laughs> just how many bikes? <laughs> uh, there's three in the Haggerty office in Traverse City. So if you've ever been there, there's a Transop on the first floor and then a BSA and a Ducati on the second floor. Those are um, mine. Although I don't know if anyone knows that they're like mine. I don't live in Michigan. So it's almost just storage at this point. So we're going to keep that quiet. <laughs> I can help you with the storage on that Transop. So. That I can help you store the Transop if you need it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's an absolutely mint, perfect bike. Um, like I think we were talking about this a while ago, Brad. It's a red one, and um, pretty uncommon. But yeah, you don't see those much. Those those were generally Canadian market bikes. Yeah, um, and that's one of the most. That's the newest sort of collector bike I have, besides an FCR six hundred, which that is borderline collectible because it's one that's not exactly in good shape. It was just too cheap, and thought, oh, that looks fun, so pick that up. <laughs> Well, there's no reason not where, to make it nice. <laughs> but that's where most, I was talking to Nick Smith about this earlier, is all these sport bikes in that area, most of them end up at the, such the cheap end of things that they become first bikes of, I'm going to learn to ride. Oh, I can get a 600 or a 1,000 for $1,000. I'm going to get that. They don't realize that 1990s bikes, the power is just as much as a bike today. And yeah, they're not slow. They're not slow. They will crash. So. Uh, <laughs> brakes probably aren't as good, but they're not slow. <laughs> no. no. I mean, if you want to talk about bad brakes, it was the when the disc brakes first came around in kind of that mid 70s, is oh, you're almost better off drum brakes. Yeah. I've never ridden the disc brakes, man, they're horrendous. I, hey, I'm old enough to remember dirt bikes with drum brakes. Uh, <laughs> uh, lots of Honda XLs and XRs and things like that. And uh, wondering, am I going to get stopped for this? No, no, you're not. Because well, I can't stop. Yeah. Uh, how'd you become a Haggerty, a Haggerty analyst? Uh, and what does being a Haggerty analyst entail? 
Yeah, I this is not going to be the plug for Haggerty. Or I'm not a recruiter or a salesman, but it has been the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Um, I was working for a British software company out of college and just wanted to move out west. I, I work up remotely out here in Colorado, Boulder, Colorado. And the British software company work was cubicle consulting on client projects, and I just could not take it. And I had been buying and selling bikes for a while. I was big into it. And um, Haggerty reached out to me. Just I don't know if they realized just how perfect timing it was, but it was like when that email came across, I was like, oh, my God, this is meant to be. And then started working out of the Traverse City office for a few months and then picked Boulder to move out to. Um, and the job itself is so I work. Uh, one of the one of the three data analysts by manager John Wiley, who's our senior data scientist, who came to us from Zillow. Phenomenal guy. He's extremely smart. And then Adam Wilcox, who's the other data analyst. And we essentially the media stories you see that talk about trends in the collector car world or vehicles where um, values are on the rise, but here's what we're seeing, such as millennials are quoting them at certain percentages more this year than last year. I'm um, looking at that data and we have export data around the world. So we can look at what cars are being exported or imported into U.S. ports the most and where are those going. Um, and we essentially have the absolute gold mine of data where we get millions of quotes a year and we can see here's the fluctuations year to year of those quotes. And being able to mine that data is incredible. And from that live stream earlier, one of the things we were talking about with data I was pulling up was stuff such as we could see that um, the percentage makeup, 1970s Ducatis, is Gen X and younger make up only a third of the quotes for those bikes, where the majority of them are from boomers. But for 2000s bikes, as millennials and Gen Zs, they have 25% more quotes for those than boomers. So there's a split. But when we talk about Ducatis, well, it's actually younger people love 2000s and older people love 70s Ducatis. But... 70s Japanese bikes is millennials. That is their absolute favorite bike is a yeah. 70s Japanese, even though they didn't grow up with it. So it's not just always that people like what they grew up with. It's people like certain things for certain reasons, and we have the data that can prove here's what millennials hmm. are buying the most, or here's what boomers are shopping for. I have a real soft spot in my heart for uh, I, I'd start with early 80s, but it's really around 83, 84. Uh, Hondas, lots of different Hondas uh, from probably 83 until mid 90s. And I owned a bunch of them. I, you know, I like those. So I owned a bunch of XRs and XLs and CBRs and VFs and uh, uh, stuff like that. And I, I still think, you know, I could go back and get one of those. I don't need the crap that I like. And there's no reason, you know, there's no reason for me to go hunt down a pearl red Pacific coast, but <laughs> I still like them. It's still kind of cool. But still. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, lots of stuff like that. I'd still like to find a, a really clean uh, Honda XR350. They only made them for a few years, and I think those are cool. So, yeah, well, that, I get what you're saying about the, the bikes, uh, the, the earlier stuff and the appeal there. That uh, when I went and bought the bike that I have now, the 2006 Kawasaki, I was on my way to another guy yeah. uh, to talk to him. But I was like, "Nah, I better go look at this one first. And, and it's on my route because that one was a 71 Honda CB650. 
And uh, it was just a hella cool-looking bike, but I hadn't heard it run yet. First time I'd went out and looked at it. Of course, Mark decided to go motorcycle shopping on the coldest day of the freaking year. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't, you know, I don't have an M on my license. I've, I've not ridden a motorcycle pretty much most of my life. And so uh, I, I called uh, Brett, and your brother came over too, and we stood around looking at things and him and Han, and then I made a, a fairly decent offer for me, and, and the kid took it. Yeah, and. Uh, I didn't have a helmet with me. <laughs> Brett drove it back to my I house. had a Harley jacket, <laughs> a pair of work gloves, and a ball cap. <laughs> it's kind of funny. You sounded like uh, Porky Pig said, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it took me four hours to unfreeze my th- my forebrain. <laughs> God, that was a cold ride. So, But I digress. <laughs> How did you become the keeper of the motorcycle flame for Haggerty? I mean, naturally, obviously, you were born to do it, but how did you get the job? <laughs> yeah, I guess it, it's not obvious by the uh, the motorcycles I've owned. I suppose it. Uh, when I came on board, is there was uh, the motorcycle price guide. It, it was something where we brought in data from an outside source because we didn't really have expertise within the team or within Haggerty. The motorcycle department was small, and it just sort of fell into my lap. Where the motorcycle price guide is something that. I saw, I'd used before, I knew that there's issues with it, I knew that we needed to fix it. And it was, there's so much freedom in this department and we can do what we want, we can look at what data we want, we can fix what we want. Is I was able to just talk to Greg and uh, Brian, our manager, and say, can I take on board this motorcycle price guide? And so our first one that we did in-house was June of last year. And then the second round is June of this year. And it's Still definitely a work in progress. There's data that's missing. There's bikes that get incorrect model names, missing model names, but it's a vast improvement of what it was. And now you can truly really reliably go there and find a value of a bike where before it was hit or miss, whether you wanted to use it as a negotiation tool when you're buying something and say, hey, look, the Hackney Price Guide says it's only two grand. Or, <laughs> what do you mean? The Price Guide says 10 grand. Why are you offering me five? And so, should, be, should be a little more accurate now. And yeah, that the motorcycle flame that has been held is there's numerous events Mecham Vegas the big auctions where we did our first motorcycle event Yumi Haggerty Insider app which does live auction reporting and prices in Vegas of January 2020 we had that in there um, which is a very big moment for us and so we're we're slowly building up that motorcycle side so tell us about the motorcycle price guide where do we find it how's it differ from the collector cars price guide and uh, are you going to, is there going to be a print version? So the motorcycle price guide is you find the same place online as the normal car price guide. Com, and then you go to the valuation tab and then um, search vehicles. And then from there, there's going to be a motorcycle tab next to the auto tab. That will be the motorcycle price guide. Right now it's only online. Uh, we do not have any intentions of making it into a print guide. And the motorcycle online guide is kind of where we send people and promote um, usage of that. Because the, the print guide itself is something that for the car price guide is almost a uh, historical thing that we just kept going and going and going. Um, and for the motorcycle guide, because we were buying data, we had a contract I think that didn't allow us to actually create a print guide. And so we just never really done a print guide and now it's not one of these things that where we're kind of phasing, you know, everything's going web. We're not going, oh, man, we really need a print guide. 
So no intentions for a print guide, but you can find it at haggard.com slash valuation tools and just on the uh, motorcycle tab. I assume the collector motorcycle market is every bit as hot as cars are right now. Uh, what have the big movers been in the last 12 months among the motorcycles? And are have there been any losers? Have, has anything taken a hit? Or is the market just universally hot? I most often than not universally hot. You can assume that anything that would have been bought 12 months ago is worth more today. Whether that's a beginner learner bike, as we probably have seen in the news, is used car prices, about something like 30%. Is they use the used car term because that's where most of the money's going, but that includes power sports and motorcycles. And so just these bikes that are commuter bikes have gone up in value. But then pretty much everything along the spectrum, besides some of this very expensive, very rare stuff that maybe there's no comps out there or the market is not decided by fluctuations in just interest of general motorcycle collectors. But if, if there's a bike where there's you know, like Ferrari 250 GTOs, is that market's not really affected by people suddenly going, man, I really want to buy a COVID vehicle. So that's like, <laughs> I mean, if you're buying a 250 GTO because you just have a little COVID impulse, then that's a different world. I'm, I'm not a part of that. Uh, nor are we. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the big winners is pretty much Japanese bikes across the spectrum from CB750s, Kawasaki Z1s have gone astronomical. We're talking what used to be, in the CB750 world, there's a standcast CB750, which is the first no. 1,400 or so VINs where the engines were cast in sand because Honda didn't think they wanted to invest in the mold jets. They didn't know if it was going to be successful. Little did they know, one of the most successful motorcycles ever made. God. And early sandcast bikes have certain distinctive features, and people pay historically three to four times what they would for a the same CB750 that's not sandcast called diecast. Whereas now that 40,000 sandcast, 10,000 CB750, a normal CB750, those have been trading 25, 30,000 for perfectly restored ones, which is astronomical for that bike. And so it's a question of are sandcast suddenly 100,000 or are they 50,000? It seems weirdly they've stuck at about 50,000 and that gap has gotten way closer. So um, we'll see where the top, top tier of that market goes. But otherwise, Japanese bikes have just gone nuts. It's 50 Gs. <laughs> it's, it's freaking 50 Gs. How much more do you want? And that's a, one of those, it's very, uh, the nuances and the collector appeal is the people that want those and know those have wanted them and known them for a while. And so it has to become more mainstream for that to really catch on or take off. And we had that in our actual bull market list last year, which came out in January, which was our um, uh, 10 cars and one motorcycle yeah. that went back to go up in value. And we had the Ducati 916 on it the year yeah. before. Sandcast 750 was this past year. Um, so we're definitely seeing some potential uptick in those. But then you were talking about XRs and CRs. The segment that has blown my mind, I was almost turned on to what was going on in this market by a guy who emailed in saying, hey, should take a look at what's happening with these 500 singles and 600 singles, is the 1980s dirt bikes, whether it's a KX82 stroke, a CR500, an XR500, is the prices on those. A CR500 now will bring 17 to 20 grand. Okay, is- well, 
Remember the conversation we had about I know where there's a 1981 Honda CR480 for $125? I think I'm going to swing by and grab that up. <laughs> I was waiting for you to send me the address. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot. <laughs> and those bikes is the interesting part is that the 1980s, if we're talking about you buy what you grew up with, it's not driven by Gen Xers who had those bikes when they were younger, their first dirt bikes like KX80s. As it's 70% of quotes for 1980s dirt bikes that we see are from boomers. So that market is being extremely driven by the boomer generation, which when I was looking into this and just seeing the prices these bikes are ringing was surprising because it's been a sudden shift that like I had an XL 600 R Honda that was absolutely mint, one of the, probably the best ones you'd find in years. And it only brought 2,800 or three grand a few yeah. years ago. And now similar bike is six, seven grand. Yeah. And Suddenly, that's become collectible. Interesting, too, uh, especially to see bikes that, uh, like, I owned a couple of those new. And, you know, it was, just, it was nice dual sport bike, nothing to write home about. And to see something for like that going for six or seven grand now, you're like, what the hell? <laughs> What's going on? The, the thing that really gets me about the early uh, CB750s going for 50 grand, two months ago, I bought a 65 Corvette convertible for not tons more than that. So to see an early CB750 going for that, I'm thinking, what in the hell is going on? <laughs> yeah, it's the, the market's done weird things, is doing weird things, and... To say where it's even going from here is an absolute shot in the dark, but essentially motorcycles have always been cheap. Um, Just in motor transportation is three grand for a motorcycle in the collector world. You can get a pretty cool bike. Right now it's a little bit harder than it was a few years ago. Do you you think that's because so many of the cars have gone through the roof that they're, uh, and people who are looking for inexpensive fun have started looking at bikes? I always say that with a motorcycle, there's a couple things that it provides. For one is it's mechanical art that you can see the engine, you can see the wheels, you can see everything about it, the drive line, from just sitting there. And they're also very easy to store. Is If you saw my garage, you'd see how many fit in a two-car garage. But the combination of mechanical art and easy to store is this is something where you can either be a passionate motorcycle rider and love the experience, or you can be someone that just says, that looks cool. It's three grand. Sure. Why not bring a trailer where people are on there buying $50,000 Corvettes and they see a Honda Scrambler from the sixties for five grand. It's like, shoot, I'll put that in my collection. I'll just put it on the wall or something. Yeah. And what's there between three grand and five grand when you're buying a, also a $50,000 Corvette. True. What are some of the, do you, do you think that, motorcycles uh, mirror what cars are doing, collectible motorcycles versus collectible cars? I think they're very different. And I have a, I have a theory, I've not proven it, that the motorcycle market is about I don't know, 10 years behind or five years behind the car market, where right now is the 1990s cars, even early 2000s cars, have just become astronomically cool and people just dying for Supras. and Red cars, baby. <laughs> is there is no Radwood motorcycle. So there is no people dying for these 1990s bikes. Oh, it, I don't know. I'd argue the a Honda, a 93 Honda VFR 750 with the pearl white and the white wheels. That's a Radwood bike. It is a Radwood. I mean, there's definitely Radwood bikes out there. It's whether there's this 
big following of certain generations. Like that's the bike that I want. I'm making those cool because for instance, the uh, Japanese bikes that we are seeing with millennials is that is the 1970s is what they want, where every side of that, it drops off is they care about the seventies where with cars, it's like, they kind of like the sixties or like seventies. They like the nineties, like the two thousands. There's just no real difference. And uh, well, the early 2000s, late 90s, there was motorcycles that came out that were sort of uh, retro classics, like the GB500, yeah. the um, Kawasaki W650. And at the time, it sold poorly. They weren't really well received and they didn't sound much. Now, people just love those. Yeah, GB500s are tough to find and yeah. really tough to get your hands on cheaply. Yeah, exactly. And that's a bike that no one wanted back then. Yet, Back in the 2000s when Ford got the Ford Thunderbird or these other retro classic cars is people loved them. And now it's kind of like, yeah, maybe sure. I guess like some people like them, some don't, but the bikes people love. And so it's this flip flop of people want a retro classic bike at a time when they don't want a retro classic Thunderbird, but when they wanted the retro classic Thunderbird, they didn't want the retro classic bike. Um, there's very different spectrums. The other thing that seems difficult to find, and you uh, you and Nick hit on this earlier today, is finding 80s and 90s sports, sport bikes that still have their uh, bodywork intact. And I think part of that was uh, they were really cheap. They were available. It was startling performance for the money. And lots of guys who, and, and I say guys because girls aren't this dumb, but lots of guys who just wanted to go fast and didn't know anything went out and bought them, and they went fast, and they didn't know anything. They wound up racking them, laying them down, crashing into crap. And I knew lots of guys like that and lots of torn-up bikes. It's really, really difficult to find early GS GSXRs and early Ninjas and early uh, CBRs and early VFRs that still have their bodywork intact. Bikes in general are very powerful and fast for the price. Like you will never even come close with a car to what you can get with a bike. Yeah. You can go for 40 grand today and buy a Ducati Panigale V4R, which has 230 horsepower and 375 pounds or so. <laughs> 40 grand can buy you. Like you cannot even fathom what that feeling is like to ride swing at that much power and that little weight. Yeah, you, it's called death. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've had some bikes that were around 160 horsepower and 500 pounds, and one of them was the scariest damn thing I've ever owned. Ugh. I kept it for all of two and a half months. <laughs> and, and I had a pretty fair idea what I was doing, and that's why it scared me. Uh, and, you know, I, I, was, I, I lived through a lot of this stuff. In my 20s and 30s, I had a lot of motorcycles and a lot of sport bikes, and a lot of it was dumb, really, really dumb. And one of those bikes I had would run nine-second quarters, and that was that GSXR. Now, it was not a stock GSXR. It had a ton of work done to it. But, again, scared me every time I got on it, every single time. And that's the bike that would light the back tire up to about 80 and Dang. pick the nose off the ground up to 100. And, Did Vulcan do that, Mark? Uh, no, Mark's Vulcan <laughs> no, Mark will not can't do that. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> Screw the Vulcan. Mark cannot. And like I said, I had a fair idea what I was doing, and that was terrifying to me. 
I can't imagine being on a bike that kind of power. And the other thing you saw an awful lot in those days, the guys who rode in shorts and tank tops and tennis shoes. Uh, being at, oh, yeah, the, the, the flip-flop rider is my favorite. Uh, seeing guys like that who didn't know what they were doing, doing 130 down a highway, uh, the tank top flipping so bad it's trying to crawl up to their back. And <laughs> geez, you just saw that all the time. It's no surprise to me you can't find these bikes. But now when you do, it seems like they command a hell of a premium. Absolutely. it's Bikes go from new and cool to depreciating depreciating and either being really abused and staying very cheap or becoming collector after many many years and these sport bikes became very very cheap a lot of them still are very very cheap and going back to that bike power versus car power is a very very cheap motorcycle has a lot more horsepower acceleration than a expensive car so you can buy an fcr 600 for a thousand dollars and be like, oh, I'm looking for my first motorcycle. I could buy a TW250 for $1,000, $2,000. Oh, wait, what's this sport bike I can also get for $1,000? Why would I buy the 250cc dirt bike when I could buy the sport bike? So you buy it, not really understanding that it will get you in trouble and they get crashed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You look at nine out of, probably more than nine out of 10, 99 out of 100, I'd say. The clutch cover is going to be scraped. The fairing is going to be cracked. Oh, yeah. They're going to be broken off. It's just how they are. So and bar end weights are going to be shaved down. Uh, <laughs> uh, the the exhaust canister is going to have a giant scrape up the side of yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I've seen these bikes. Uh, yeah. uh, it used to be that, and, and I, it's been a long, long time, but they had a couple of super bike races at Heartland Park in Topeka. And we're in Kansas City, so it's about a 70-mile ride. One of the dealerships here organized a, a ride, uh, for motorcyclists to come from the Kansas City area to Heartland Park for the superbike races. And everybody took off together, and all the sport bike guys hit it really hard. And all the leader bikes were up front in a big pack. And then it kind of thinned out, and all the 750s were in a big pack in the middle. And it thinned out a little bit, and then all the 600s are in a big pack bringing up the back. And everybody was over 100 miles an hour down I-70. Oof. Uh. Everybody. Uh, the leader bikes were going way over 100 miles an hour down I-70. I can't, I'm not allowed to tell you how I know. <laughs> I may or may not. I, yeah, names have been Alleged. changed to protect the innocent. Allegedly. Or guilty. Uh, so what are some of the biggest sales you've seen in the past year? What caught your attention? And what do you think is currently selling for less than it should? Ooh, all good questions. Uh, big sales in the last year. Uh, there's actually one just last week for $4,000. For it's an AJS Porcupine. Uh, it's one of the most valuable racing motorcycles. Um, it's a British bike and I think in the top 10 sales of all time, there's one at 700 or so thousand, which a motorcycle has never broken a million at public auction is the highest sale was three years ago. I think it is. Um, that is uh, Vincent black lightning land speed bikes over 900 something thousand. Yeah. But when you look at car records of, you know, $50 million is not breaking a million for a bike is, you know, you could get the best bike to ever come up for sale publicly for less than a million. Um, oh. So there's that at four hundred thousand. Then the 
100000 $100,000 segment. There's some very big Harley Knucklehead sales at the Meekin Vegas auction, um, which were postponed until I can't remember if it was April or May. Um, and that was record-breaking for those is the values that those knuckleheads are bringing at that auction was immense. Um, but then overall, things that are worth less than uh, I think they should be, I'll spin the crystal ball here. And for me, is the bike that always sticks out to me, and that's why it was on the bull market list two years ago, is the Ducati 916. Yeah, That is known as one of the most beautiful bikes ever made. It's a Ducati. It's not all of them are red, but most of them are red. Mm-hmm. And the image of that bike, it is something that I don't think you can get anywhere else for a price close to that. And they've been going up in value a lot. It was that you could easily find one for five, six grand. Mm-hmm. Now it's eight, nine grand. But still at eight, nine grand, I think for one of the sexiest bikes made. Yeah, they it, absolutely it, are. I would think that I would never would have pictured any Ducati regardless for in the single digit thousands. No, period. you could uh, talk they, to me I, after the show. I'll I had get no you idea. <laughs> well, I mean, is I'll it, isn't Ducati hooked. kind of like the Ferrari of sport bikes, basically? Yes. Yeah. 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 You don't see Ferraris uh, for three, four thousand uh, dollars. And the maintenance is tip is Ferrari like too. Oh, okay. So that's why I knew this one guy. He tinkered with his go. Ferraris, or I'm sorry, Ducatis in his garage all the time. Okay, okay. Usually, if you kind of take a, a car value and divide it by ten, you might get to sort of an equivalent bike value. So you see Ferraris at sixty thousand. Is you can get standard basic Ducatis for six thousand. Yeah. Um, okay. And this nine sixteen, I think, is still just undervalued for this phenomenal bike to ride. It. It has all of the right emotion feels and passion feels. And their little sister to it, the 748, yeah. is almost a better bike to ride. It, just because it's you can rev it out and you're not kind of being a hooligan. You're just really having fun with that. I took one through uh, Las Vegas a few years ago and just phenomenal bike, which is even cheaper than the 916. But if you're talking about investment value here, is no one really goes out and says, I'm buying a 748 for the investment value. The 916 is the one that you want. And then within that generation, the absolute pinnacle is the 916 SPS, which is uh, Sport Production Special or whatever the Italian words are for that. And I'm not <laughs> here. All I know is Ducati and sexy, and that's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the balance and the turn-in and the handling I think the 748 is a little bit better than the 916. And the only thing I have to prove that is running a clover leaf on one. It wants to dump over. It wants to turn in. It wants to haul through a corner. Now, that said, I rode one back-to-back with my GSX-R1100, and I thought it was broken. <laughs> I just yeah, Dry what, clutches are not a good thing. Well, wasn't the clutch? It just... <laughs> In comparison, the power wasn't there, and I thought, what the hell's wrong with this bike? And I gave it back to my buddy. I said, I think there's something wrong with your bike. And he said, yeah, the problem with your bike is it's got more power than brakes. <laughs> so, <laughs> at any rate, uh, what big events are coming in the collector motorcycle world, and what do you think merits attention? Uh, event space? Yeah. Where, what What's coming up? Uh, so the two I'd say, big events for bikes in the year are the Las Vegas motorcycle auctions, which is usually Bonhams and Meekum, which that's usually in January this year. It was, like I said, I can't remember, April or May. Oh, everything that, got pushed back. 
<laughs> essentially the Scottsdale of motorcycles and the stuff you see there is phenomenal. Um, and then the Quail Motorcycle Gathering in uh, Monterey, and that's in, ooh, is it, uh, I can't remember when Quail is, um, or Barber, I don't know if these got postponed. But those are ones where it's a mix. Quail is no auction, it's purely just a concord and a motorcycle event, and we mm-hmm. sponsor a track day, or not say a track day, but a Haggerty ride that ends up at Laguna Seca, and you get to ride around Laguna Seca. Oh, neat. Uh, place, you'll see, uh, 1930s vintage bikes racing around a track with 2020 Ducatis going five times as fast. (laughs) (laughs) Slightly dangerous, but yeah. uh, So yeah, it looks like the quail gathering the um, is going to be pushed back to 2022, uh, May 2022, and then the final big event is the Barber Vintage Festival at Barber Motorsports Park, which is a phenomenal event. Mm -hmm. Um, Puts on an auction. They have racing around the track. They have a big swap meet, which the swap meet is what it's mostly famous for. Oh. It'll be vendors set up with any sort of part or bike or thing dug out of a garage you could ever want. Those body a panels for the sports passion. So, do you have any bike trips planned for for what's left of your summer? And if so, where are you headed? Yeah, um, so I just picked up a KTM twelve ninety Super Adventure, which is. Um, KTM's sort of off-road, on-road touring bike that has 160 horsepower and is a bit of a hooligan bike, but um, <laughs> register it today, so I get to be a hooligan on it. That's coming up. Um, and then some buddies are coming out for what's called the Colorado Backcountry Discovery Route, mm-hmm. which is a sort of, I think it's a nonprofit technically, but they put together essentially the best, most fun way to go across Western states off-road on sort of adventure touring bikes. Like F800 GS is a 1200. Okay, GS. are you are you doing the Transatlantic Trail? I've or the never Trans America Trail? Trail. Trans America Trail. Yeah, I've never done that, but that's a similar idea where it's just sort of going across the country on mostly dirt roads. But this route is it starts in the either northern or southern portion, either way. Steamboat to Telluride, essentially, and you're going over whatever 25 mountain passes, you know, 12,000 foot passes, dirt, boulder fields. You know, you're pushing your bike in places, stream crossings, things like that. And I did it about five years ago with my dad. And I'm going to do it again with some buddies and my dad, too. Um, now, and then, I mean, last summer, I just, my sort of COVID get out and do something. Was I rode 3,300, 3,500 miles across the West, just left Colorado and went up through Wyoming, looped Idaho with a buddy, and then down through Nevada, Utah, and back through Colorado on maybe 200 miles of actual interstate otherwise mm-hmm. just back roads middle of nowhere seeing stuff that i never knew existed and so um, that's going to be the maybe another trip in september will be something similar but not 3,000 miles maybe knock it down a bit dude that sounds like a cool trip absolutely it, it goes back to that whole thing of on a motorcycle you see things and you smell things and you oh, hear yeah. things you would never realize is I could never imagine driving 3,500 miles in a car. I would stop and turn around a quarter of the way in. But with this, it's, you know, I did it about eight days or something like that. And a combination of the twisty roads, just being out in the middle of the open desert of Utah with nothing around you where you can bomb along at 100 and just feel like you're not moving at all is a phenomenal feeling. You're going to have to this. stop. Mark's starting to drool. <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong. 
All right, final question. You can pick one of two. Either A, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done on a motorcycle, which we'd really like to hear. Or, <laughs> no one or, ever does anything dumb on a motorcycle. Or, or B, you can compare and contrast with me what are the worst animals you've hit while in motion. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk motorcycles. <laughs> um, I, I will say despite being a – all right, so my kind of – I don't want to say claim to fame, but uh, my dad kind of had Ducatis growing up, and uh, he still has the bike he bought new. Uh, Ducati 999, he bought it in 2005. Oh, cool. And uh, I grew up riding dirt bikes, and I took my motorcycle safety course test when I was 16 on that Ducati 999 Superbike, just because it's sort of, you needed a bike to take the test on, and like, I don't know, my dad trusted me. And then I was the... Some would say asshole that would show up to high school on a Ducati 999 superbike and like park it in the front parking spots and um, do that. But I thought I I could have been stupider um, about how I rode. But I mean, I think everyone when they see a manufacturer that says you know top speed 162 is your meat like uh-huh. well, how do I find out. And so I think with every bike I get at some point you're like, well, let's find out if they're right. And sometimes that's going across the desert in Nevada, and sometimes it's other places. But uh, <laughs> I, I test top speeds frequently at opportune moments, I suppose. I, I'm really waiting for you to say, tested the top speed on one of those roadside speed trailers to see who could get the best number on it, <laughs> like me and my dumb friends did. <laughs> the, uh, I had one moment not to do a speed signs, but to do a speed on that Nevada trip where there's these just absolute open dead straight roads, right? I was blown away by the amount of mountains in Nevada. You go over mountain range, down to a valley, yeah. straight road, mountain range, valley. And you come down these valleys and you're like, all right, well, opportune time. Let's see how true that top speed is. And you're going, but then out the corner of your eye, there's these like pronghorn deer that'll just bolt across the road in the middle of nowhere. And I won, <laughs> like, you know, over, I don't know, 100-something um, speed. And just, like, you suddenly see, like, these kind of bouncing animal going across the grass, and you just have an absolute panic moment. Yeah. And that's probably not worth it. So. Uh, yeah, I've had a couple of those. I can relate. <laughs> uh, may or may not have been doing north of a buck 50 when i had a squirrel run out in the road in front of me and then stop like a statue oh god and you're thinking i I really can't correct very much i'm gonna smear the little sucker (laughs) hey rocky watch me pull a motorcycle out of here (laughs) Uh uh-huh uh-huh and you know when you're going that fast you're watching a long way ahead and I finally got the bike completely shut down about 200 yards past where the squirrel was, jumped off with my helmet and was carrying it back because I was going to find the squirrel and beat, <laughs> beat him, him to death. death. <laughs> <laughs> death by HJC, baby. <laughs> that's not road kill, that's road murder. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I can relate to the animal thing. Uh, even if it was just a squirrel, you're thinking, that squirrel's going to kill me. <laughs> yeah, I mean... At that speed, anything's hard. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely was. We have been speaking to James Hewitt, editor of the Haggerty Motorcycle Price Guide. All the links for James, Haggerty, and the Price Guide can be found on www.readthedriven.com. 
James, thank you so much for being with us, and good luck with the new venue this weekend. Thanks, guys. That was cool. And Corey's ready to buy a Ducati now that he found yeah, out. Yeah, come so on, cheap. Corey. Well, I like to, actually, a coworker of mine that, uh, just got one like a month ago. And you thought and, he was uh, big stuff, and now not so much. And well, I remember just going to work, seeing it, saying, "You know, wow, cool." You know, I didn't. I was like, "When did we start refinishing motorcycle wheels?" Because we don't, <laughs> you know. And I was like, "That's interesting." And then all of a sudden, I would go and see it again because I'm not at the office every day. I'm like, "Hey, that Ducati." So I'm like, "Wait a minute, I know who owns that." And it was one of the guys that he, I didn't realize he had traded his bike in and got a Ducati because he had uh, he had a Honda before that. So. Ducati makes. Uh, a dual sport bike, a, a bigger one. It's more of a tour bike, like the like uh, James KTM, called a Multistrada. And I've looked at that a few times, and I've sat on a few of them and thought, <laughs> they do seem cool. Thank you so much for spending time with Driven Radio. We love what we do, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our listeners. You can find us online at drivenradioshow.com, readthedriven.com, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Driven Radio Show. And everywhere fine podcasts are heard. I am Brett Hatfield for Corey Pratt yep. and Mark Groves. Yep. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time here on Driven Radio. Driven Radio.